You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with CEOs from established security giants to up and coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a security company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fanzadeloff, the CEO of Devo. And today my guest is Mariano Nunez, CEO and co-founder of Onapsis, a leader in business application security. Mariano, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. And uh, Mariano, both, we both live in the Boston area, and uh, I've had a chance to see you a number of times, and I was really looking forward to this discussion to uh, delve into some interesting topics that you and I have talked about. I think you know by now, I, I love to start these just with uh, really getting to understand where the CEOs come from. And in your case, I think it's a particularly interesting story. So let me start with that question. You know, wh- Where were you born? Where are you from? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, so I spent uh, most of my life there. Uh, moved up here to Boston uh, about nine years ago. Uh, but yeah, all my, my upbringing and all my kind of early childhood memories are from, from Argentina. That's amazing. And, uh, and probably most people who listen to this podcast don't know that uh, I have a mother who's from Argentina. And so I always joke with Mariano that we're both, uh, we're both Argentinians. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was born in the Netherlands to a, a Dutch father, but an Argentinian uh, mother. And I've been to Argentina three times. My wife and I got engaged in Argentina, in Patagonia, and uh, we love, uh, love Buenos Aires and uh, are thinking of going there in December and taking my mom with us this time. I remember your mom being a huge fan of alfajores. That's uh, special cookies we have down there. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Anything with dulce de leche is a winner. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, she makes am- amazing empanadas as well. Well, I need to meet, I need to meet her then. <laughs> we can make that happen. She'd love to join this podcast. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it brings up a, a serious topic, which is, can we think of another Latino CEO in cybersecurity between the two of us? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I don't know many. I think the only one I, um, I've i heard of, and I met, a, I met a couple of times, is Enrique Salem from Semantic, yeah, kind of back, back from the Semantic days. But uh, I probably can, top of mind, know like two other CEOs, like Latino CEOs in cyber, but... Yeah, we need more. We need more of the of the Hispanic community uh, getting represented in cyber, and there are not too many. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll return to that topic uh, later in the discussion, but I think it's it's a really really cool angle and um, sets you apart. Argentina is a really interesting country. I was reading uh, a, a book around uh, this is how they say the world ends, where they go into the hacking, you know, kind of zero day vulnerability market. And Argentina actually features more than others may realize as uh, having a fairly robust community of hackers. Core security came out of Argentina. A number of players and folks came. Out. Can you describe it all? That community in Argentina. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the, to your point, I think there's not well known by many people across the globe, but people that have been in cyber for a long time, they, when you say you are from Argentina, they're like, oh, wow, you're like, do you know the core guys? Do you know these people? They like, you know the Echo Party folks. So this is a really, really big uh, kind of underground and hacking security community in Argentina. I think it's really honestly, like in Argentina, it's like you, you have to have this hacker mindset to survive, right? It's like things change on you so quickly, uh, like from government regulations, from like kind of social uh, context situations. Like every day is like, it's almost an adventure in Argentina and things that were maybe work yesterday, they change, right? They change the next day and you have to adapt a lot. So I think some of that may have spurred some of this kind of hacking mindset in Argentina. And that's why we have such a, such a big community. Uh, but yeah, guys that charted uh, the path, right? Core security was like early 
kind of really almost creators of the penetration testing category, yeah. right? Uh, like have a lot of like large organizations in the U.S. So uh, they, they've done amazing things to really foster that community. Yeah, and uh, that's great. And you grew up in Buenos Aires in a regular kind of family and uh, good memories there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like uh, kind of middle middle class family out of the kind of uh, one of the um, towns in in Buenos Aires in, in the capital uh, capital federal in Buenos Aires. Uh, so yeah, all all good memories growing up. Like doing a lot of like sports. I have uh, two siblings, my parents. So uh, yeah, all all good memories from that time. Okay, cool. Well, um, getting towards your your career. So, do you remember what was your first uh, kind of meaningful paid job? <laughs> I think probably the first one that would qualify would be uh, washing my dad's car to, so that he would buy me a bike after you know like six months of washing it every weekend but I think after that uh, when I was 15 uh, I built a website uh, for our town there in in Buenos Aires and uh, really the, the the plan was build a website with the news about the, the the town and the community and then I ended up going with my laptop to all the shops in the town to try to sell them ads uh, to try to get advertising on the on the side, I think it was probably at today's money, maybe 50 cents a month or something like that. So not a lot of money. Uh, So that's probably my first, I would say, uh, kind of paid job, uh, which was quite a, quite a good learning experience. Yeah. I mean, mine was caddying. And then I also worked in a warehouse for lawnmower (laughs) engine parts for a number of summers. Uh, But I I feel like yours gives you more skills that might be useful in your actual job today. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I learned like, I think it was the technical side of it, which I always enjoyed since, since I was a kid. But I think this, this thing about going with your laptop, like as a kid and trying to sell, like kind of almost like cold calling, like in person, right? Walking to the shop, like, hey, let me show you my website. Um, with a, I had a very, again, we we're like kind of middle class family. My laptop wasn't the latest and greatest. Actually, the battery didn't work. So I had to go in, plug it in the, in the person's shop and wait like 10 minutes for it to load. Uh, and then I was showing the website. Um, and I, I think the piece I learned is like how hard it is to sell, right? Uh, how hard it is to really like uh, kind of p- p- put that value proposition in front of someone, like from a cold perspective. And, and really how uh, I always remember this phrase about like that no is the second best answer that a sales guy can get, right? And it's crazy how so many people, even when you are 15, they will just drag you alone, right? And not like not commit, oh, why don't you come next time if you show me my logo in a different way? And, and they would just drag you along and not give you like a yes or no. So give me a really good appreciation for, for what my sales team goes through every day, right? Yeah. Second best to maybe, I guess, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So uh, b- before we get into your, your proper career and your studies, but um, from your upbringing, did you really look up to somebody? Do you look back to that time of your life and say, you know, I really wanted to be like this person and, and my career is like that? Is there a part of that part of your life that you think of a lot and, and reference a lot in your, in your thinking? Yeah, I think maybe two people come to mind at that age. One was, at that time, it was kind of more Microsoft, right? And Bill Gates. We didn't have the Zuckerbergs or kind of the new generation. Right. So it was like kind of this idea of how you just, how he created this, this empire and uh, so that kind of got me into trying to develop my own operating system when I was at school, which of course was not. <laughs> I studied with the, I studied with the UI just to give you a sense of how like wrong I got it. Um, yeah. But then um, then the other one was a person named uh, Julio Ardita, who was a re- really well known security researcher in Argentina. So that's actually the person I reached out to also, like a cold email to him uh, because he had a security consulting firm uh, there, and I, and I just reached out to him because I wanted to work for a guy for free just to learn from him. So I think that's probably another kind of role model at that time. 
Cool. Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah, he's been a. He's still in the community. He's part of a of a different firm now, but a really, really good person that taught me taught me a lot of things. All right. Well, maybe I'll listen to his podcast. So your studies, you went to university down there. What did you study? Yeah, went to university, like public university, studied computer science, engineering uh, there. Um, I think I spent the first year I was just studying. Then I started working pretty young. I started working at 18 at this person's firm. Uh, So it was basically studying uh, and working part-time until I graduated uh, six years later. And so that was your first kind of real job. Yeah. And what were you doing there? There was basically a, an offensive security researcher, so basically red teaming, penetration testing, uh, doing bug hunting. It was my dream job. I was getting paid for what I was like, like doing at, like at home, studying and reading books. So for me, it was my dream job, and I learned so much. I think I, I did the university just to get honestly, just to get a title because I was really learning at the job. Uh, the other thing was, I think, it gave me a good foundation for other things. But for me, that job was uh, really the place where I learned uh, like uh, a lot about security. I, I don't have a similar experience to that. I, I didn't, never got that as technical during my studies. So mm-hmm. I always have huge respect for people who went that, that deep early. Building your own OS, did you really try to build your I own really, OS? Yeah, I really tried. I was not successful. What I, I was successful that I built my own IDS uh, when, in high school. One of the, you had to do a project for one of the classes. Uh, so I built an IDS, Windows IDS. I wanted to mil- build an IPS. So I actually wanted to stop the attacks. But I couldn't figure out how to stop them at the network level and the kernel level, so I ended up building it something that would detect it only. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but uh, but yeah, no, the OS was a complete failure. I just got a good a good logo and a, and a UI, but <laughs> nothing more than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Did you start getting into thinking about? business application security? Because Anapsis, and I think we'll go to Anapsis after this, but did you already start thinking and get the idea about maybe there's something, because you talked there about network right. and OS, right? Uh, network and endpoint. So those are the two big uh, attack surfaces, right. obviously. But application is another one. Did you get into thinking about business application security at this time? Yeah, that's that's when I really kind of first encountered that. And honestly, it was, it was more of an accident than anything else. Like I, my background is not in business applications, right? It's all like in cyber and the same thing with the founding team at Onapsis. And, and it was really during this, this job, I was doing a lot of penetration testing and, and application testing in general. And we ended up getting a customer to hire us to do a, a pen test on, on, on top of an SAP application. All right. And I didn't, uh, now I can say it, but I didn't really know what SAP was at the time, which is pretty embarrassing, sure. right? But then I yeah, started doing it. <laughs> I started researching. It's like, oh my God, this this really runs the planet, right? It runs like digital economy. All the largest organizations in the planet are running on SAP or Oracle, right? Like in that case, like at that time, JD Edwards, PeopleSoft, Siebel. You have now Salesforce, kind of Workday. But you have these huge application sets that are running the most critical processes, most critical data of, of the largest organizations in the world. And that got me really excited from a, almost from a market perspective. And I think the, the key... And the aha moment was when I started doing research and I started finding like a lot of zero days uh, that for whatever reason, no one else was looking at. Uh, people, as you said, were focused on endpoint or on maybe some databases at the time, a lot of focus on right. network. But I like, then I realized like, oh my God, like we can't hack into any ERP system in the planet without a user and password. And no one is talking about this. So that's why I ended up getting invited to speak at Black Hat in 2007 about SAP cyber attacks and ERP cyber attacks and really started kind of building that, that snowball there. My perception always of the application security, uh, you know, 
concerns from a security perspective. It is it is some similar things like malware and zero days and the like, but there's also a business level concern like right. segregation of duties. Right. You know, somebody in somebody in receivables approving something and 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 uh, you know payable. You know, like it's all it's a different set of business level concerns that you wouldn't have at on the endpoint and on the network. Absolutely, and that's what we found. Like it's not that people they were neglecting protecting these these assets, right? Because they're very critical. But essentially, what they were doing was segregation of duties, like making sure that, if, as you said, if Mark can create a PO, he shouldn't be able to create a vendor, right? But what we realized from a cyber perspective is that even someone without a user like, could hack into the system and be able to do all that and more, bypassing yeah. all those segregation of duties controls, shutting down the operation, performing fraud, or stealing really sensitive data. Uh, we have customers that if these systems are taken offline, it's the, like, they cannot manufacture or ship products, like $20 million per minute. All right? So we're talking about very, very significant business impact. That I think it was just like not being really like looked at from a cyber perspective. Okay, so then it must be around this time that you start thinking of forming a company around this idea. Is that right? Is this when Onapsis was formed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we founded Onapsis uh, in 2009, September 2009, uh, out of my co-founder's bedroom in his apartment in Argentina. That was really it. It was like this recognition like, oh my God, this is a huge market opportunity. No one is doing it and it's very critical, right? So, So we decided to... Maybe that's when I combine that kind of Bill Gates uh, kind of admiration from creating a large company with my passion for cyber. I say, okay, let's let's go after this. Yeah, yeah. So, in, but I think in California and in the West Coast, they do it in a garage. <laughs> right. And you, and you guys, you guys did it in a bedroom. Yeah, so. yeah. You didn't you didn't want to be in that bedroom. It's like no AC, uh, like no no heating. It was. Uh, but look, that's where I have a lot of so so many good memories, right, from that that place. But yeah, that's a. In Argentina, that's uh, the Silicon Valley version of the garage is, is a bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> it is a bedroom. Got it. Okay. Makes makes sense. Uh, give us a little bit more here. So what does it mean you founded a company? I have not, never founded a company myself. I mean, do you guys just get together after university and kind of be like, hey, let's not get a job and start <laughs> 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 your bedroom? I mean, how does this work? Yeah. For, for us, it was like, I, so I knew my co-founders from that, that uh, consulting firm. So we had worked with each other for six years uh, at that time. By the time I had finished university as well. Uh, and for me, honestly, I mean, we talk a lot about entrepreneurs, like you just jump without a safety net. Honestly, for me, it wasn't that a kind of difficult decision because I knew I could come back to being a security researcher, right? If it didn't work right. out, like it was not, maybe I know it sounds a bit more, um, uh, I know it's a better story if you say that, yeah, I kind of left everything behind and I knew that I couldn't fail. The reality is that I, I knew I could go back to it, but I, I was pretty determined to make it successful. So that's how we started. Yeah, I still remember the first day looking at my co-founders like, okay, what the hell do we do now? Right? We just quit our jobs. Yeah. He came back from Spain to do this. I was like, okay, now, now what? Right? Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. So in 2010, you guys released the first product and you got your first customer. Tell me about that moment. That must have been thrilling. Yeah, yeah. So we spent a year developing the product, released it in September 2010, and a month later, we yeah we ended up getting our first customer that ended up being the U.S. Army. So uh, yeah, <laughs> no, way way to start small. Right. I mean, that's that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a very happy day for four. And at that point, four guys in a in a bedroom in in Argentina. And yeah, it's um, I went to Huntsville in Alabama, delivered a, a training for them, like yeah, some of the smartest people I. I have ever met, uh, and, and they bought a training with a product, which they use. We had to learn, force how to scale very quickly, right? From zero to dealing with that type of organization. We got 
Fortune 100 customers also in the next in kind of in the, in the first two years. Uh, so so we had to to learn to scale to that very quickly. We didn't have the step uh, before that. I mean, was this like a multi-million dollar contract or was it a, a small start? With no, it was a small start. Uh, I think that contract was, I remember exactly, it was like $30,000 for the, the one-year subscription. Um, at yeah. that point, we had a, the first product was more of a point-in-time, essentially vulnerability scatter for SAP apps, right? So it was more of a desktop tool. It wasn't really an enterprise platform. We developed that in 2015, a few years after that. And that's when we started really scaling the business on a, at a different clip. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes makes sense. Did you also end up doing some fundraising for the company? Yeah, we raised in 2012. So about three years after we started, we raised a, basically a seed round with some angel investors. With that round is when I came to the U.S. in 2013. Gotcha, okay. And were they U.S. investors that invested in the company? Oh, actually, it was a blend. And again, that's kind of part of maybe the, the lucky strikes you get along the way because we, we didn't have like, we didn't have a network of like wealthy people that we knew we didn't, we're, not, we're not part of any ecosystems uh, but we applied to like essentially a startup challenge in Argentina and one of our judges in that in that process was a, a person named Marcos Galperin uh, who's essentially the founder and CEO of a company called Mercado Libre so think about it as the Amazon of Latin America it's a huge it's, it's the largest company in, in Latin America uh, from a market cap perspective Marcos, like, I think he, he, he fell in love with the story and he's like, hey, if you need help, if you need money, let me know. <laughs> of course, we called him right away. Uh, yeah. And he connected us with people he knew from Mercado Libre, right? People that invested in the IPO and before IPO. So he connected us with people at TPG, Dragonier, and, and they uh, invested in the first round. Yeah, I, I'm picturing like Shark Tank and <laughs> TV and, you know, Robert Herzog <laughs> uh, kind of personality here with this, Mar- with this Marcos guy. But it, was it like that? Were you on TV and doing all that? <laughs> no TV, but, but look, I, I felt I was on TV. I was like, we were like super, super nervous, right? We were like uh, trying to pitch this to like guys who have created multi-billion dollar businesses. It was him, the other panelist next to him was Nicolas Agustin, who's now the CEO of the Hong Kong Exchange, so he was the CEO of uh, JP Morgan of uh, APAC at that time. So like, you're, you're pitching to people that have really seen scale and other things before and, and you're telling them that you're going to conquer the world and, and sell to these Fortune 100 uh, companies. So it was definitely, I felt it was on TV and more. Right? But they were, they were yeah. super cool. They were like really, yeah. they, they, I think they, they lived through that themselves, right? Marcos founded the, the business out of a garage as well. So uh, they, I think they related that. Amazing. Yeah. And so you moved to the U.S., you moved to, I think, Boston, right? Yeah, moved straight away to Boston 2013. So with my wife at the time, like she's uh, from Argentina as well. So we came together and we actually landed the day of the, of the marathon bombing in Boston. So it was uh, a pretty interesting way to start. Uh, it was a very sad way to start with everything yeah. that happened. So we're, and we're fairly close. We live by, by the West End, which is fairly close. So we were hearing the ambulances and everything. It was, yeah, it was, it was we got into curfew here in Boston. I know some people may not. Uh, know this, but like there was a curfew that day uh, after the the bombing. Shops were closed. We didn't have we didn't have anything in the fridge because we just landed. So I ended up going to a subway to get a couple of of sandwiches to like have dinner that night. I, I mean, did you did this give you any pause? Like we we made the wrong decision. I mean, that's a scary start to an adventure. Yeah, honestly, no. Because maybe again, maybe worse. I'm coming from in Argentina. This, of course, is very sad and it's very dramatic. Like, but in Argentina or in Latin America in general, you have a lot of 
like kind of crime is high and you have a lot of things that from a, like maybe because I'm an engineer for me, from a statistical perspective, it's way more likely to, to that something bad happens to you in like in Argentina than in Boston. Right. So for me, it is of course a very sad thing and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's crazy that those things happen for me, it didn't personally make any impact in the decision itself. Understood. And so let's talk about the business at this point. I mean, how many employees are are in the company? Is it still just you and a couple of founders by the time you move, or you have a larger team now? 2013, um, I think we're probably maybe 30, maybe. Uh, but we didn't have anyone in go-to-market, essentially. So it was all product development, kind of research. And that's where really we started hiring the first, uh, basically building the go-to-market team. Uh, so we hired the kind of first uh, head of sales, first head of marketing, kind of first few reps. So really for us, We've been in kind of go-to-market mode since 2013. Before that, it was more like I was doing the selling and we're getting the first, like perfecting the product. We keep it almost like stealth for a few years, uh, for three years. Uh, and then as we raise and hire the go-to-market team, that's when we started really accelerating. And you and I have talked about this before. Uh, you know, Devo is in a category that is created, mm. right? We we are in the security analytics category, not to get too much into Devo. And whenever we come into a client, they have something, then we're the next generation, right? right? They have the, But generally they have a budget and they have something that's not working to satisfaction right. and we're able to replace it. You're, you're creating a category. Mm. It's more of a greenfield uh, scenario. Is that right? Yeah. And I think look, that's there's a lot of really good things about it and there's a lot of, of drawbacks, right? You, I think the probably first one is you don't have competition, right? And the, probably the problem is that you don't have competition. So there is, there is yeah. no budget, there is no, no urgency, there is no established like buyer persona or, or governance or programs to fund this. So a lot of the early days had to do with kind of really creating the market category. Um, I think in 2017, uh, Gartner made it officially like a category inside application security that's one of the, I think, biggest things that it was a lot of investment in really helping people understand that they had a problem. We, we go see a Fortune 10 customer and they'll be like, no, why are you telling me it's impossible? No one can break into my ERP without a user, right? Or, and we would, like, the good thing is that we could show them, right? Like we could actually yeah. do like a, a mini penetration test and they'll be like, oh my God, I need to call my CIO, right? Uh, but yeah, but right, then uh, it's, it takes time, right? It takes time to get the budgets and things like that. No, in a, in a prior life, I was a venture capitalist right. in Amsterdam, investing in companies. And a lot of entrepreneurs would brag that they have no competitors, right. right? They would pitch us their business plan and say, and we have no competition. And they used to think it was a great thing to say <laughs> right. to a VC. And at the time, we would write down like a demerit, right. right? It was like, it was a, because you, in a way, it's easier having competition that's helping to create the market. And you're doing it all by yourself with your little little marketing budget. Absolutely. Now, that's, yeah. now, now I, when I, I kind of look at it from that perspective now, after so many years, because I, I used to be that naive like founder we're like oh no we're great we don't have anyone right uh, and now right. you understand that it's not it's not that easy when that's not there i think fortunately if you look now kind of fast forward there is competitors we sustain that market leadership position we created that ecosystem we work with many of the big four kind of like top system integrators like three like i think more than 20 percent of fortune 100 so we really were able kind of to cross that chasm uh, uh yeah. but there's still a ton of opportunity still again we have like less than three percent of the of the market uh, and we're the leaders, right? So there's a lot of greenfield. But you have, yeah, you have over, I mean, to give you some, to repeat some of those stats, over 300 clients, like right. you said, uh, 20% of the Fortune 100, you guys have really good growth rate over the last few years. So it's become a substantial and impressive business. Can you say how many employees yeah, are in the team Yeah, we're about 350, yeah, globally. Nice, mm -hmm. yeah. 
it's still a lot in Argentina? Or have you? Yes, we essentially have three hubs. So for a long time, we kept kind of from a design perspective, like US, Boston was, and Europe were kind of go to market. And we would keep R&D yep. in Argentina. Then in 2019, towards the end of 2018, we acquired essentially our biggest competitor in the SAP space, a company called Virtual Force. It's a company founded out of Germany. So now we have a team of about 100 people in Germany, and that's a blend between R&D and, and go-to-market as well. You know, something we haven't talked about, but I want to ask you, the whole phase of developing product and product management, I've noticed at this company and in my career that when you go from that founding phase where you had, as you said, you know, 30 people in the company, most of them technical and product, but now you have over 300 at some point, you probably had to set up a professional product management function and that changed. Because in the beginning, I think that the techiest person is just making the call, making the features, and off we go. And at some point, probably had to professionalize that with a product management team and process that would represent all the more diverse needs as you got bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a critical step, right? I think that that evolution from like a technical, and also I think it's also like a founder uh, evolution because I, I've seen founders were... I think if you're not able to do that transition as a founder where, A, you're really like hiring someone that's like 10 times better than you to define what the product is. You can always, for me, I see myself as an input to that process, not the one leading or defining what needs to be built. Like I want to be an input like, like the customers, the partners, the competitive landscape, like other stakeholders. But I think if, if you as a founder are not able to recognize that and really create a solid product management function, I think that becomes a limiter for growth. For me, the other big, uh, I think it's may, maybe specific to category creation, but you spend a lot of time educating the market. And essentially, because you're making them aware of the problem, and at the same time, you're telling them what the solution is for that. I think there's a point in time where if you don't make that transition from really, and you have to do that in the early days, right? But because they don't even know they have the problem. I think it's very important. We recognized this a few years ago when... Like now we have, again, when you have hundreds of customers or even doses of customers, I think evolving from you telling the market what they need to really having your customers drive your roadmap, drive your strategy, like get that outside in prioritization versus the inside out. That's one I think are the key transitions that, that we had to do as a business. I, I remember telling my team, like, I don't want to hear that we're doing anything because quote unquote Mariano says, or Mariano said, like, that's for me is like, Maybe some people get a kick like on the egos or high on the egos for that. For me, that was like almost like dagger in my heart. It's like no, we like we cannot be doing things because I said so. It's like it has to be because like our customers are driving there, right? So that's really I think a key evolution. The title of founder carries enormous weight, even even just CEO without founder. In my case, it, 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 sometimes the title the titles we carry as business leaders have too much weight. And as you said, you don't want uh, everybody running around saying Mariano right, said right. Or, or Mark said, uh, because maybe we're right, wrong. And, yeah. uh, and, 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 and there are better ideas that uh, our customers or competitors yeah. have that we need to be, be doing. Absolutely. You have, a lot of, you have a lot of biases, right? You have a lot of biases. You have a lot of uh, kind of assumptions built over the years that I think you, but to your point, Mark, I think that's, that's a great point because I think you have to be intentional and explicit about that transformation with the team because if you don't do it, to your point, people would kind of naturally, as human beings, you'll kind of uh, default to that, okay, oh, the CEO is saying it or the founder is saying I should do it. I think like trying to really empower teams and be intentional about, guys, like I'm not going to be part of the pro. like happy to review your, like your recommendations after you talk with customers, but 
like use me as a as a kind of check, not as the one defining it, right? Um, so I think it's it's very important. So you got uh, maybe one other thing on the on the kind of build up of the company. You raised quite a bit of funds over the years. I think you did a, a fifty five million dollar Series D a couple of years back. Do you enjoy raising fundraising? Is that part of the job you enjoy? It's a very good question. I'm a technical founder, but I like I like go to market and selling and marketing and position more than the technical thing. I I usually tell my my team like if you see any piece of the code that still has my name, you should. Assume it's wrong, delete it, like build it again because I'm sure it has more it has more bugs per line than anything else we have. So just I never I was never a good developer. I was never, like I think I was a good researcher, but like I, I don't enjoy a lot of the technology aspects of the business. I really like the kind of more of the sales and marketing side of it. So I think from a fundraising perspective, there's a lot of that, right? It's a lot about you telling the story, you're telling the vision, you're telling like kind of the traction. So I really enjoy enjoy that part. Uh, and I think now we have really a good team. Basically, I deal with my CFO. It's like, okay, I, I'm going to get us to, to the term sheet. I'm going to get us the best possible deal. Then once we get the term sheet, like you run the diligence, you run the process, you like you get yeah. us to closing. And the good thing is that now, like, we have a really good CFO now, uh, Dennis Cashman, who's a former CFO of uh, EMC Corporation. He, yeah, he's now our CFO. So, so we have a really good kind of cadence there uh, that I know he can run this with uh, kind of his eyes closed, right? Nice, nice, nice. Awesome. Throughout the the building of the company, just to to take it in a different direction, did you ever think you weren't going to make it? Did you ever think that maybe you'd run out of money and it wouldn't happen? No, that never happened to me. <laughs> just <kidding. laughs> that, happened, <laughs> that happened so many times. But I think that's part of the game, right? It's part of that. That is why I think it's it's a hard job. Like for me, it's the amount of intensity of like good news and bad news you have per day. Kind of the ratio of like. Good and bad news per day is, is really, really high when you're running like a startup like this. And, and you've seen it, right? Now you've seen that with Devo. Even a large company, I think it's a bit slower, but Devo, I'm sure that, that you've seen that every day, right? Specifically, I remember like two situations. One where we actually got the funding the day after our bank account went to minus 20,000. So that was a, a yeah. pretty stressful few weeks and months. It was one of the earlier rounds. At that time, like we were not for, like, it was not just a founding team. So I was responsible for a lot of like people's like pay- payroll, yeah. right? And, and, and that, of course, carries a lot of, of weight. Yeah, they were definitely, I think that was the closest one uh, we've been to, to like, oh my God, this is going to be really, really, really tough. And then you go along the way, there are a lot of times where you think that, that things are going to work or not work out, but it's, it's really about like trying to do what you can control, right? And, and what you cannot control is just like, it doesn't make a lot of sense to stress about it. Yeah, totally get it. All right, well, beyond uh, beyond an absence, which has been an amazing success story, you mentioned hacker mindset. Tell me about that. What do you mean by this hacker mindset? We talked about it coming out of Argentina that you had to have a hacker mindset. Yes, I think that it's that ability to adapt, I, I guess. It's like it, things, when you put the business plan together, when you like and start executing, things do not go as you expected, right? And and you have to continuously adapt, continue to find new solutions or solve problems in a different way, right? And try not to keep doing what you were doing before. So I think there is a lot of like in the hacker mindset on how you apply or how you approach uh, hacking a system, right? Testing the security, like approaching angles that maybe the people that designed that system didn't think about. I think it has to do a lot to do on how you can apply, especially for me in a market, kind of in a category creation really phase. It's like, okay, how do you really convince right the buyer how do you like how do you educate them how do you change their perspective how do you like what are the assumptions what are the mental models that they have and that you have to really try to 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 kind of uh, awake them in a sense 
I think that's kind of from an awareness perspective. And then from an execution perspective, it's just like, I think the hack, like good hackers I know, like they just don't give up, right? You're always, you're always, right. okay, this doesn't work. Like you find that bug after, tenacious. right, you're, tenacious, you're resilient, you keep trying until you actually are able to, to break it. Uh, so I think it's a lot of what I think made us successful to this point, and it's important to keep with that with that mindset. Awesome, awesome. So let's step back to your your roots. You you're a Latino leader. Do you think about that often? Is that a big part of your kind of your personal story and leadership, or is that kind of in in the background for you? No, I think it's more in the background. Maybe it's because how I think about other people's kind of background that I like really don't care too much where people are from or like what like I. Yeah, I think we're all humans and period. But so maybe it's not forefront for me, but I guess you're reminded about it like every now and then, right? We maybe not 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 very nice yeah. way. Not not like you. We're talking about it. Some people remind you about it in very subtle and negative ways. Uh that and you have to, to deal with some of that. I think it's maybe a bit more on the early days. When I came to the US, we were kind of trying to get started. I faced a couple of situations where like you just yeah, you're being reminded about it, even if you didn't, if you had it in the background, right? I think other than that, I think that the positive things for us is that we're almost kind of diverse by design, right? From a company perspective, right? We have yeah. a, a like more, more than yeah. 50% of the team is like Hispanic. We have people in the US and we made, we were very intentional to like not have second class citizens, right? Even when we acquired this company in Germany, when like we had a team, started a team in the US, I would hear someone in the company like, oh no, like Argentina this or Germany that, or like, hold on, like you're talking about the engineering team in Argentina. You're talking about like, there's no like us versus them. And there's no like, like if you yeah. start labeling things that way, I think that like that goes, goes the wrong direction, right? I did that on a call this morning. We have most of our, most of our amazing Technical teams, engineering teams right, are in Madrid yeah, for us. So we should we someday we should get our teams together. They 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 all speak they all speak Spanish, uh, and and we have some great Germans in our company too. But uh, it's the same thing. Somebody today on a call said, "Well, Madrid." And I said, "I said you mean right. the engineering team." And, and by the way, that leader also has people exactly. in different yeah. countries, not just in. Uh, I very much agree with that. Yeah, words matter. As you said, kind of diverse by design. You also, I think, have done quite well um, in this area. Focus for me as well on on uh, female representation. I think your management team has got a good representation there. So is that something you worked on actively? Yeah, absolutely. Also across the next layer of management, I think we have really good stats from that perspective. My first board member back in, like was a female board member even before it was uh, trendy or fashionable. Like so, so I think it's again for me, it's it's about making sure that we we have a diverse and inclusive team. We're doing a lot of active things in that way. And, but again, if you don't map it to real actions, then it doesn't matter. So put a, we put a lot of emphasis in that. Final question. What's your advice for entrepreneurs? You've you've gone, like you said, founder, CEO. You're now 13 years into this journey with Anapsis. What's the advice for entrepreneurs thinking of starting a company? That's a difficult one. Um, I think if someone is thinking about starting a business or how ready, I think it's maybe more if someone's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, they should know, at least my perspective, my opinion, that it's really, really, really hard and it's way less glamorous than, <laughs> than it, it seems from the outside. But my perspective is like, I, I wouldn't trade for anything. It's really about the experience, it's about the journey. I think you learn so much about yourself, first and foremost, 
in the, in the, when you're just talking about the roller coaster, it's like you're going to go through really, really good times and highs, and you're going to go through really difficult times. And you learn a lot about yourself, and you learn a lot about people and how people think, what motivates people, what how how they respond. And and for me, it's like a, a great a great experience from a learning perspective. If you crash and burn for whatever reason, like you're not successful with your venture, like you're going to come out a much better version of yourself anyway, right? Yeah. Just for going through it. It's such an like a rich experience that I would strongly recommend anyone to do it. I, I find it hard to believe that like once you do it, you can do something different because it just gives you so much perspective. It's such a rich experience that, uh, yeah, I recommend it to anyone. That's awesome. Well, I have the luxury of seeing the big smile on your face <laughs> as you're describing this. So I can see how happy the thought makes you of being a, an entrepreneur. So I think it's a great note to close uh, this podcast out on. Mariano, thank you so much for joining us on Cyber CEOs Decoded. Yeah, Mark, this, it was my, my pleasure being here. Thanks a lot for the invite. And yeah, next time we'll do it with your with your mother, with Alpha Horis, uh, and, and we'll have her talk as well. And empanadas. <laughs> thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, Mariano. And thanks to our audience for listening today. And be sure to join us for the next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. Mm-hmm.